She sneaks into people's windows at night, to the bedrooms of sleeping children. Welcome back to Same Here Man, the podcast that you can put under your pillow and receive absolutely nothing. The podcast that you can rip out with dental floss. No! (laughs) Did your parents ever try the, like, tie something to the door handle and pull it thing? Yes, (gasps) but I think it was like I initiated it. Like, I wanted to rip it out. Oh, my gosh. Losing teeth is so awful. Yeah. I am Lucille Mills. I'm Marie Renee Katz. And today we're going to get kind of magical and kind of gruesome because we're talking about the tooth fairy. Ooh, gruesome. I mean, think of teeth falling out. Oh, true. I was just picturing the tooth fairy like murdering people. Oh, (laughs) well, now we know where Marie's brain goes. Yeah. Uh, Disclaimer, if talking about teeth makes you super uncomfortable... This might not be the one for you, but uh, send it to your dentist, maybe. So, Marie, uh, what do you know about the Tooth Fairy? So, my relationship with the Tooth Fairy uh, was when I was a kid and began to lose my baby teeth. I would put it in a plastic bag under my pillow, and then at night, the, quote, Tooth Fairy would come and replace the tooth with money, But I always remember knowing that it was my mom. Like, I 100% never thought there was a fairy doing that. Hmm. So I don't know if, like, I'm I'm sure there are kids who thought it was real. Um, The weird thing is I thought Santa was real. But for some reason, I saw right through the tooth fairy. Not Santa. That's hilarious. Yeah. Wow. Uh, What about you? Was your family big into tooth fairy stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we definitely did the tooth fairy thing. Baby teeth losing was just a weird phenomenon in my house, and it probably was for everybody, but I I think it's so traumatic that we kind of wipe it out of our memories as soon as we can when we're growing up. (laughs) Like, I had to sit and think about what it was like losing my teeth for this episode, and all of a sudden I remembered, oh yeah, my mom, a washcloth, and pliers. Um, (laughs) Yeah, not good. And I had definitely not thought about that for at least 20 years. So. Yeah. If we're diving into uh, traumatic tooth losing stories, um, I just remembered one. <laughs> I'm so sorry to all of our listeners who are now remembering theirs. <laughs> yeah. I was in like my church bathroom and oh. my with my friend and I was like, my tooth is super loose and it was a molar. And she was like, twist it and it'll come out. <gasps> and so I twisted it and it did like a 180 and just stayed <gasps> in my mouth. Oh, and then no. I couldn't twist it back. And so my tooth was just backwards for like a while. What I mean, it was probably hell? only like an hour before I got it out, but it felt like, oh my God, my tooth is going to be like broken forever. That would feel like years. Oh yeah. my God. The inside of your mouth is something that you are always hyper aware of. Yeah. And especially as a kid, because you're just really sensitive to everything. Everything is new. Yeah. The taste of blood was the oh, worst God. part for me. Awful, 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 awful. I really dreaded the the gap, the gums where Ooh, the tooth wasn't. Yeah. That was like the worst thing ever for me as a sensory experience. I can still like feel it with my tongue, like Ugh. in my head. So yeah, deeply internal experience, oddly forgotten about as we become adults and we're just like, ah, kids losing a tooth. Like it's a really traumatic experience. Right, but super universal. 
incredibly universal, like throughout all of time. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that having been said about how gruesome and terrifying it is to lose teeth, you asked me what tooth fairy things were like growing up. Very inextricably linked with that gruesome experience uh, is my first answer. And then also it was a really exciting opportunity to exchange money in my house. So like getting the money afterwards was a really exciting part about it. Mm. More exciting than losing the tooth. Interesting. Yeah. And so I'm curious if anyone else can relate to that. Yeah. You said you put yours in a little plastic baggie. I had mm. a little weird like ceramic box that was shaped like a tooth. <laughs> yeah. So it said Lucille's tooth box. That's so cute. So before we like try to dig up the corpse of the tooth fairy to figure out where the hell this came from. Um, I want to do a little call back to nostalgia and innocence, two topics Ooh. that we have really dug deep into. And the tooth fairy is like a totem of innocence in a child's life. It really marks the shift in a child's body as you go from mm -hmm. baby teeth to adult teeth. Like that is a huge transformation on a physical level. That's true. And it's seen as a rite of passage in a way. And the tooth fairy is kind of this, this symbol that parents use to navigate that with their children, if that makes sense. Yeah. This place of genuine belief in the tooth fairy, like the, the idea that the parent teaches the child this, this mythical lore and the, and the child is supposed to like believe it, receive it, and like carry on in that belief really contributes to the idea of innocence as well. I pulled this quote out of, um, there's an article that I'm going to be referencing quite a bit because it's actually really hard to find information on the Tooth Fairy historically. <laughs> it is called The Tooth Fairy, Perspectives on Money and Magic Ooh. by Tad Talea. This quote that I'm going to use to kind of tie it back to nostalgia and innocence says, so firmly does the tooth fairy dominate juvenile fantasy life, in fact, that discovering the quote-unquote truth about this shadowy benefactor constitutes a major negation right in the passage out of innocence. To say that someone mm -hmm. still believes in the tooth fairy defines him as quaintly naive. Oh, interesting. I like that analysis. Yeah, so... Not just talking about the Tooth Fairy and how, like, we remember it or how we interact with it, but the Tooth Fairy as a social figure does mark that rite of passage, does mark a, a sign of innocence of some way, and a kind of innocence that other kids will make fun of kids for. You know, like, oh, they still believe in Santa Claus. Oh, they still believe in the Tooth Fairy. Yeah, that's true. Wow. That's like a bullying I had forgotten about until you just said that. Right? Same. Like, you still believe in Santa. I know. At a certain age, I don't remember exactly what age, I started to kind of like figure out that Santa and the Tooth Fairy and things like that weren't real. But when I first heard it from my parents, which made it like, you know, Facebook official or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> when I first heard it from their mouths is when I felt like my childhood is over. Like, I, I, I remember having that thought of like, huh. I can never go back to the bliss of not knowing again. Yeah. Yeah. I had a similar experience. Um, hmm. And I don't know if that's just because we're very self-aware children who <laughs> end Probably. up being the exact kind of people to make a podcast about the topic or if that's a universal experience. But it is – it's true regardless that a child is put in that position by the very adults who then use that innocence to insert moral panic here. Yeah. So – 
always loops back around, it always folds over in on itself, and it's always kind of the same note being played underneath all of it, and that is that adults have to define childhood in some way, mm-hmm. and a lot of it is made up sometimes in really overt ways, like the Tooth Fairy. We use that to navigate this really big bodily change, or worse things, like childhood innocence like we talked about in previous episodes we love to define innocence in terms of like certain milestones in a kid's life like we talked about previously losing your virginity being one of them i think learning about the tooth fairy and santa and the easter bunny being not real is kind of another milestone we use to define a kid growing up and losing their sense of innocence Mm -hmm. yeah the first time that they have a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend or whatever mm-hmm. is one of them. Like Your first kiss. Yeah, all of childhood is defined by milestones. And I don't know if those milestones are inherent. Because, um, like, obviously everything does happen for a first time. But the amount of importance we put on them isn't always yeah. up to the kid. And I think the yeah. Tooth Fairy is a great example of that. Because, like, kids aren't making up the Tooth Fairy. This right. is a purely adult phenomenon. <laughs> yeah, you don't come out of the womb expecting to receive money for your teeth when they eventually fall out. Oh, yes. So I'm going to read another, um, a rare quote that's not going to be from the same article that we're going to jump back to a whole lot. Okay. Talking about the mythical context of the Tooth Fairy. Because the Tooth Fairy exists as a companion to Santa and the Easter Buddy. And believing in the Tooth Fairy makes kind of an analog for developing faith later in life. Mm. The idea of the practice of believing in something that you can't see. Mm -hmm. Throughout this episode, I want to kind of talk about, like, why do we do this? What is the purpose that this serves? Mm. And what are the reasons that we keep perpetuating it? Because you don't perpetuate things generation after generation without thinking about it at least a little bit without it having a reason. And some of that reason is nostalgia and us wanting to repeat things that we did totally like earlier in life. And some of it is innocence and wanting to, I don't know, curate a child's whimsy and protect it for as long as we can, Mm -hmm. uh, leading to the inevitable letdown Mm -hmm. (laughs) that you talked about earlier. Yeah. But there are other purposes that the Tooth Fairy serves aside from those two things. And so I want to kind of dig into some of those. Okay. And one of them, I think, is is a practice of faith um, because America has this really deep need to not be religious but totally be religious. You know what mm-hmm. I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I totally know what you're talking about. Yeah, and I think a lot of our American listeners will as well. Um, Those of you who are outside of America, uh, we do know there's a few of you, and we adore you. Um, Those of you who aren't as familiar with American culture, uh, you can probably still pick up on it in a lot of our media or from, um, like, American-produced movies and Mm -hmm. novels and just the idea that the underpinnings of of our moral identity are due to some greater power um, that is probably white and probably male, and we're not really supposed to question that very much. <laughs> yeah. This is how it was in my family. It, there was kind of a, a mindset of if you don't believe in the Tooth Fairy and if you don't believe in Santa, they're not going to come, or like you'll get coal in your stocking. Like yes. You, it's contingent on your belief, otherwise yes. it won't work. And I don't think that's an accident because that is, I would say, one of the... <clears throat> One of the toxic beliefs that the Christian church perpetuates is that, you know, 
it, it's God's power only works if you believe really hard. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. I would push it even one step further and say that, and this applies to both both examples that you gave of children and the way that adults are treated by like a larger religious foundation is it's not just belief it's the performance of belief yeah it's not enough to because how do you measure belief like (laughs) you can't unless it's self-reported and performed and like exhibited in some kind of way and so putting the tooth under your pillow like being excited for the tooth fairy voicing your belief in it Mm -hmm. those are all performance whether or not there is actual faith behind them those need to be done in order for the parent to feel invested and that is worth looking at totally it was a rule in my family like you couldn't publicly like even once we all knew that you know my sister and i both were aware that santa and the tooth fairy and that kind of thing wasn't real it there was there was this rule that you had to like continue pretending that you thought it was real otherwise my parents would just not they or so they said they wouldn't give us Christmas presents. Like I remember That's my amazing. Yeah, like my dad once made my sister write a letter to Santa to ask for a guitar for Christmas because that's what she wanted and he was like, "Well, I'm I or Santa's not going to get it for you unless you write Santa a letter." And she was like 15. Like What the fuck? Yeah. So What the actual fuck? Who is that benefiting? I don't know. I think oh he was God. I think it's just I think it goes back to nostalgia. He just liked the whimsy of it and liked, you know, pretending that it was real and that there was magic involved, which is strange to me because I'm like, why wouldn't you want to take credit for an awesome gift like a guitar? Well, yeah, but also, like, there's no magic involved. Yeah. Especially at that point. Yeah. Like, forcing forcing nostalgia to happen seems really counterproductive to me. Mm-hmm. But again, this just goes back to something I'm probably going to say over and over again. I will never understand your father. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But all that to say, like, I think it does have an element of that faith thing you were talking about because it was like, it wasn't enough. Like, you had to perform your belief. You had yes. to write the letter to Santa or like you said, you know, put the tooth under the pillow and pretend to be asleep like I remember waking up when my mom was coming into my room to put the money under the pillow and I just pretended to be asleep because I knew if I acknowledged that I had seen her she wouldn't do it yeah hmm interesting levels of benefit here I'm going to take a couple steps back from the performance of belief and go to kind of the first step that I think we skipped over which is the idea that teaching belief in something you can't see is a Hmm. big part of the lore of the tooth fairy and other mythical creatures but the tooth fairy is a very specific example that i want to hone in on yeah and here's a quote from the human development journal written in 2000 and the article's name is children's myth and their significance And this quote says, Just as adults believe that events depicted in a drama can take place in their own lives, children believe that Santa or the Tooth Fairy can show up. There are different kinds of realities. Some are imaginal and some are not. Some are adult-like and some are childlike. Some involve faith and some do not. If we agree that reality, as such, is plural without privileging one reality over the others, then studying children's faith in myths emerges as legitimate. Hmm. So that quote was important to me to pull out because, like, 
when you ask what's the point in studying something that's not real, yeah. um, it gets muddy really quickly. And I I wanted to really drive home that like there is a reason to talk about all of this. Like there it is a behavior that we perpetuate and therefore it warrants attention, especially because we are applying it to the youngest and most vulnerable among us. Yeah. All right. So without further ado, let's dive into where the hell this all came from. Nice. I'm excited. How far back do you think the Tooth Fairy goes? Uh, What's your gut tell you? I don't know. I just assumed it was, like, kind of always a thing. I've never really thought about it. So that's what I find really interesting about the Tooth Fairy in particular and why we're not doing an episode on Santa Claus, also because it's, it's <laughs> February. Um, it feels universal, despite there not being movies about it. That's true. Like, there's a billion movies about Santa. There are definitely some movies about the Easter Bunny, and we have bunnies all over in, like, children's books or whatever. Yeah. Like, those are really easy to digest. Finding pop culture around the Tooth Fairy, super difficult. Yeah, that's true. So that makes it feel older in a way, I think, because of that, because we don't see modern representations of it. We also don't see old representations Hmm. of it. So I think having it kind of exist outside of pop culture makes it feel like it exists outside Hmm. of time. That's a good point. So like we said at the top of the show, kids have always been losing (laughs) teeth. (laughs) And losing teeth has always been a really big deal in human development because it indicates that the child has made it past, uh, historically, the the years during which infant mortality is skyrocketed. Um, so making it to the point where you lose teeth means that you're probably going to live like a normal yeah. life expectancy because the highest parts of any historical mortality huh. is due to just the vulnerability of children. That makes sense. So since kids have always been losing teeth and losing teeth have always been a big deal, there have also pretty consistently been ceremonies around this big moment. It's like a rite of passage. Some of those ceremonies have certain aspects in common, and many of them are very unique, and some of them are still in use today, and some of them aren't. Um, I'm not going to track down every single tradition for teeth losing, because that would be excessive, and we are just a small podcast. (laughs) Something that's unique about the Tooth Fairy, though, and the American Tooth Fairy that we know we're talking about today, is that it goes on... For every single tooth. Yeah. Like, some cultures just celebrate losing the first tooth, and, like, that's Um, fine. Um, Or the last tooth. Yeah, that makes sense. But, like, all 20 teeth? (laughs) That's a lot. That's so many. So I'm going to share some specific traditions from around the world that are related to teeth losing. Because we don't really know where the tooth fairy came from. Like, like getting a, a specific evolution to where we are now is almost impossible it's a lot of conjecture there are some theories and like really thin threads but there's no clear jump from like and this is how this became the tooth fairy yeah um there's an italian figure that is associated with christmas interestingly enough um her name is marantega She's specific to Venice. Hmm. She is kind of a witchy crone-like figure, like a tall, gaunt old woman um, with no teeth. And so there's like very clear connection there. Uh, She's mostly associated with Christmas in place of St. Nick and like Hmm. gift giving. But she 
also gets involved year-round when little ones lose their teeth. Oh. Yeah. It's, like, so charming to have the same person wow. involved with all of that. She's so efficient. Yeah. She's just I covering know. multiple holidays. Does she do Easter, too? No. It's an untapped market. <laughs> she should really get on that. So the story is, like, she does this due to her own toothlessness. Like, she wants teeth. Aww. And she exchanges them for coins. So there's an exchange of, like, teeth for money, but it's really small and local. This isn't, like, a widespread folk tale. And, like, the timelines don't match up. It's really unlikely that that became the tooth fairy that we know now. Because she's, again, much more strongly associated with Christmas. Yeah. At least that makes sense because she has a reason for taking your teeth. Right? Like, oh, yeah. Lady needs teeth. Yeah. Very logical. There's no reason why a fairy would need teeth. We talked about this in our first episode. Like, that's the part where it falls apart for me because, like, (laughs) this fairy isn't paying rent with teeth. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. Maybe she uses it for, like, potions or something. Sure. (laughs) The next tooth custom, I'm going to jump over to France real quick. And this is a couple of centuries ago. So this is, like, back to maybe 1700, Not not any earlier than that. And that involved uh, placing the tooth under one's pillow, that's familiar, and okay. being given sweets in return, not money. Oh. And the the figure responsible for that transaction was none other than the Holy Virgin Mary herself. Whoa! Very deeply religious belief. Interesting. Yeah, oddly connected between, I don't know, something you consume and like the teeth going away to the holy mother who like raised the most important baby ever known to man um oh yeah that's true i hadn't thought about that yeah so so that one's kind of fun i was more caught up on is there a significance of giving sweets which is something that's like said to make your teeth fall out is there a significance for that no idea i don't know what the world of dentistry was like a couple hundred years ago and i really i really didn't want to find out That doesn't sound riveting to you? (laughs) (laughs) The Victorians made baby teeth into jewelry, which I fucking love. Wait, really? Yes, really. Uh, That's a fun little detour. That's kind of terrifying. Did they, like, carve it or was it just, like, a tooth on a string? Tooths sometimes, like, embedded in jewels or in metal and turn into rings or pendants or brooches or what the fuck ever. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, because, again, like, babies would die a lot. So having mementos is important. Mm -hmm. Or if your baby made it past milk teeth age, also cause for celebration. So Victorians loved jewelry, turn everything into jewelry, um, and baby teeth were very popular. That makes sense. I guess that's kind of like teeth celebration of like really cherishing teeth. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. But that's not about exchanging them for money. And it has nothing Mm. to do with the kids, really. Like that would be more of mother's jewelry. Yeah. So moving to the most accepted story that we think maybe turned into the Tooth Fairy um, was a mouse. A tooth mouse? Yeah. Instead of it being a fairy, it would be a little mouse. Okay. And why does he want our teeth? That is an interesting question. (laughs) So that goes back way long ago. I mean, rats and mice have been around for a very long time. Kids have Mm -hmm. been losing teeth for a very long time. And Mm -hmm. the idea was that you offer a baby tooth to a mouse and you ask for a tooth to grow in its place that is as strong as a mouse's tooth or a rat's tooth. Oh. Because rats can chew through literally anything. Yeah. Rat's teeth are known for being very, very strong. 
So the idea has been like if you offer your baby tooth to a mouse, then you can ask for a stronger one to grow in its place. And lo and behold, stronger ones always do. So oh. very uh, self-feeding kind of ritual. Was there a belief that if they didn't do it, they would get like an equivalent or weaker tooth? I don't know if there was a – there wasn't necessarily a punishment associated okay. on the on the other side of it. It was more of a, a custom than a – gotcha. A belief system. Gotcha. Know. That was actually all around the world. Um, yeah, I, I wrote comment, colonialism. Um, <laughs> <laughs> practiced in South America, in Europe, in Canada, in some parts of the world, it still is. Hmm. It moved from offering a tooth to a mouse to a mouse would come and take your tooth away. It switched yeah. from you giving the tooth to the mouse. from To the you leaving it somewhere. Yeah. Gotcha. You would leave the tooth in like a designated place and like the mouse would come and take it away and give you a better one. That transformation does speak more to the, our tooth fairy tradition. Yeah. Here's a really great quote that kind of describes that custom a little bit more in depth from that same article by Tad Tuleya. So it says, shed teeth are offered to animals in virtually every region of Europe with the commonest recipients of the teeth being crows, birds in general, and rodents. In the most widespread version of the custom, the child places the tooth in a mouse hole, or behind furniture, or near the hearth or oven, and, with a doggerel formula, asks the mouse to exchange the lost tooth for a better one. So cute. Uh, I'm also just going to define that word doggerel, because we very rarely use it, and it yeah. basically <laughs> just means uh, verses or words that are poorly written <laughs> so <laughs> it, doggerel formula meaning like really piecemeal and just kind of like we're making the shit up as we go that pretty much describes it <laughs> doesn't it yeah and i'm glad they explained what it means to offer your tooth to a mouse because i was wondering like what does that look like because i was picturing like ratatouille and the mouse comes up and is like hey man thanks for the tooth but like <laughs> then i was like it makes oh, a lot more yeah. sense to leave it somewhere a mouse it would find makes it makes way more sense for that to happen <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i'm glad that cleared that up i really want to hone in on the fact that this is all piecemeal and like there is no consistent way that this is practiced there's also not a consistent way that the tooth fairy is practiced in american households that's true and like when you're born you don't get a handbook on on american parenting that says these are the traditions that we all practice like no everybody kind of makes it up as they go and you make yeah. it up according to what kinds of questions your children ask and then you have to stick to the answers you give them yeah so that's true it becomes very customized over the generations and that's just kind of how we are where we are now <laughs> So that makes me wonder, were there any aspects of the Tooth Fairy that existed in your family because of something your parents made up on a whim and then couldn't go back on? Oh my gosh, probably. Um, ooh, yeah, there's going to be one example of that, and I'm going to save that till later. Ooh, Because it okay. has to do with inflation. I'm so ready for it. I know, you can already see where it's going, but we're going to save yeah. it. We're going to save it. Okay. So – Let's uh, kind of jump forward to where we are now in the tooth fairy that we know and recognize now instead of like all of these kind of weird, maybe they're related, maybe they're not related, um, other versions and customs and figures. But all in all, the first references in America of the tooth fairy are really insular. They're really hard to track down. And they don't start until the beginning of the 20th century. Oh. Super recent, like huh. 1900s. And it doesn't get into popular culture until about the 50s in World War II. Oh. Was there any 
correlation to World War II of why it got popular? Absolutely. Ooh. I was just going to ask you if anything came up for you with, with me saying that timeline. Hmm. Like, what do you think the difference is between, like, 1910 kinds of families would participate in the Tooth Fairy versus families after the World War? The only thing I could think of was maybe, like, less dads being around, and so it was mm. more of a mom thing to do. Uh, very creative, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go with what what I wrote down here. Yeah, what does it say? <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> so the kind of families that would participate in the Tooth Fairy, it requires disposable income to give to mm. your kid. Like handing a nickel to a five year old is definitely a luxury. After World War II and the baby boom that came afterwards, there was a lot more disposable income to go around. Like a lot of that makes sense. home ownership blew up and people were having more children and women were now like trying to be part of the workforce and there's more income to go around. It was just a huge boom in the economy in general. And the idea of the tooth fairy becomes a lot easier to practice in your family because you have more money. Yeah, I guess I never thought of it being a financial burden because, I don't know, just the, you know, financial privilege I grew up in, it wasn't $5 every couple of months wasn't a big deal for my family. But yeah, putting it in perspective of pre-war, post-war, it's a, it's just a perspective I've never thought of. Right? Like, do you spend your money on bread for dinner? Or do you give your kid a nickel for something that happens to literally every human? Yeah. Before it becomes popular, it seems like a really easy decision to say no to. Right. Yeah. But now, I just think of after the war, there were so many more children in general compared to before. <laughs> like, such a huge explosion of population. And when there are more kids... And more kids talking in schools, in the places where kids socialize. I feel like family traditions spread a little bit more like wildfire as well. Yeah, that's true. That makes me think back to like, why do parents go so apeshit on Elf on the Shelf? And it's because <laughs> their kids are saying what other kids' elves are doing. Yeah, that makes sense. Children are kind of like little influencers in their home, in a little way, you know? <laughs> yeah, another reason I guess I've never associated the tooth fairy with being kind of like an expense was that I always just figured if the family doesn't have the money, you could just give them an exchange of something like a little piece of candy or whatever. But mm -hmm. I never considered like what you're saying of the kids going to school and, and maybe talking about what they got from the tooth fairy and your kid might come home and feel jealous that they're not getting as much as Jimmy's getting. Well, Jimmy got $5 and I only got a Tootsie Roll, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting layer. Yeah, this is just conjecture. Like, I didn't find data that tells me that this absolutely happened. Yeah, but, This you is know. just me going off of other examples in pop culture and family traditions where children absolutely influence it because of what they get from talking to other children yeah so i don't think it's too crazy to think that part of that might have a little foot in the door when we talk about how the tooth fairy took off mm -hmm. um the other reasons that i wrote down because it's not just like there's more money to go around and there are more children like that that does not a tradition make mm. there was also a big boom after world war ii of what we now call child-centered parenting 
Hmm. I'm not going to dive super deep into child-centered parenting right now because I want to do a future episode on it. Oh. It is a really interesting shift in how we view and rear children and, in essence, like how children are created between those genera- that generational shift. It's mm-hmm. really fascinating to me. But you can kind of pick up on what it might mean just from the phrase child-centered. It's the idea that a child is more important than maybe previously believed um Hmm. that a child should be at the center of a family and like rearing children should be focused more on the child's experience than the parent's experience which was a totally new wave of thought like that was earth shattering Ooh, interesting it was a big deal sometimes it was referred to as quote the cult of the child (laughs) what (laughs) this invoked some strong language yeah this is not a light thing this is a big deal and so putting the child more at the center of how a child grows up involves making it more mythical like injecting more fairy tales into it making it more magical and enjoyable and that had a big part of it so is the thought process there like hey children enjoy this pretend fairy tale stuff let's just do more of that because they enjoy it i'm sure that was part of it i think it's also if kids enjoy it then it's more important yeah okay yeah i think another crossroads with all of these other factors we're talking about is also um the rise of national media like Mm. movie theaters become more popular and more accessible animation is becoming a much bigger deal animated movies are made for children for the most part And the idea of creating entertainment for children um, is kind of novel. And, you know, what's blowing up at this time is Disney. And what do we know about Disney? So many freaking fairies, man. True. So Disney is kind of the biggest driving factor behind the fairy part of the tradition. The tradition is obviously like there should be something special about losing a tooth Mm -hmm. and we're going to create this weird tradition. But the idea of making it a fairy, this is the first time a fairy comes up as far as all of these other worldwide traditions we're talking about. The fairy traditionally was a very British concept, like British folklore and Irish folklore. Like fairy stories and fairy tales are based around that mythical sprite creature but the mm-hmm. Disney fairy, I say Disney fairy, and I can think of three or four right off the bat. Like, like it invokes a very specific yeah. image and a very specific kind of benevolent character. Totally. And that is the kind of fairy that became the tooth fairy. Yes. When I'm picturing the tooth fairy, I'm not picturing, like, the mythical creature. I'm picturing a tiny, beautiful woman with yes. sparkly hair. Great hips, <laughs> a great waistline. <laughs> I'm talking about Tinkerbell. Tinkerbell. Got it. Um, yeah, sorry, got distracted. <laughs> <laughs> She's made for distraction. It's fine. So those are kind of the those are the factors that I found to be the most compelling as far as how we got to where we are now with the Tooth Fairy economic boom after the Second World War and the rise of childbirth at the same time coupled with a move towards 
putting the child more at the center of child rearing, which was crazy. Mm, <laughs> it sounds yeah. really normal now. Yeah, um, it does. And also just the prominence of Disney and Disney fairies really paving the way for what this what this new character should look like. Hmm. And that's still it's not universal. Like it is really clearly Disney influenced, but the figure of the tooth fairy going back to the fact that there's not really any popular media around the tooth fairy is still a little foggy. Like there are some surveys where children are asked, what does the tooth fairy look like? Or what gender is the tooth fairy? And it's not 100% universal. Like, it's it's a tiny mm. little female presenting character. Like, some yeah. children don't think of it as having a gender at all. Um, and some see a male tooth fairy. Wow, that's really, like, woke of them. <laughs> right? <laughs> I totally assumed the tooth fairy is a woman. Yeah, and, like, a lot of that has to do with, you know, where you're growing up or the kind of Disney movies you're exposed to. Yeah. Okay. So going back to what you were saying about pop media and um, the Tooth Fairy, I had a vague memory of there being a movie about where like a guy becomes the Tooth Fairy. And I just looked it up. And oh. it, it has Dwayne The Rock Johnson. <gasps> I remember that. It got a 5 oh out of God. 10 on IMDb, a 17% on Rotten Tomatoes. Of course it did. Oh, my God. Yeah, and it's funny because he's not the tiny girl. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's the comedic factor. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have the waistline. <laughs> oh, my God. Can I read the description of this movie? Please do. Rough and tumble hockey player Derek Thompson, which is The Rock. That's not even that far from his name. I know. <laughs> Derek Thompson, played by Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> Is a terror on the ice, earning the nickname Tooth Fairy by separating opposing players from their choppers. I don't get that. Like he but knocks their teeth out, but that's a shitty way to write that it. That is such a stupid way to write it. Just Oh my god. Yeah. Do better. <laughs> when Derek dashes the dreams of a young fan, he is quickly sentenced to serve time as a real Tooth Fairy, complete with wings and a magic wand, though he quote, can't handle the tooth at first. Derek's oh new God. job helps him slowly rediscover the dreams that he gave up on long ago. Oh my God. It like hardly makes sense. You can't handle the tooth. Oh my gosh, Ryan Sheckler is in this movie. <laughs> okay, we're doing a watch party. We're doing it. <laughs> we got it. All right, so that concludes our trip through history. Uh, we're going to pop back over to the real world where we actually live and actually do a podcast and actually talk about the Tooth Fairy. <laughs> Next, I want to talk about what do parents get out of this? Because we said at the top of the show that like this is obviously something made up by and for parents. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you really drove that home with your examples of like your dad demanding performance of belief in order to yeah. still participate, even though it's all highly questionable <laughs> yeah he doesn't really get anything from it yeah it's not even the means to the end that you're trying to accomplish right so that's the next topic i want us to delve into is like what do parents get out of this and why do they perpetuate it whether or not they're actually making a serious decision to do so or not i'm going to start with this one parents initiate this myth to produce nostalgia, which we've already kind of pointed to, uh -huh. and it links generations together because the value of tradition. Oh, okay. I'm going to quote American Folklore, an encyclopedia. It is a cultural event as well as a physiological change in the child and promoted by parents to encourage imagination, but also to hold the child back from entering the harsh adult world too soon. 
the tooth fairy period is voluntarily initiated twice, first in childhood and then in parenthood. Many other cultures celebrate the loss of the first baby tooth, but the tooth fairy typically stays around until all 20 baby teeth are grown out of. Wow, I never thought of it... I mean, I think that kind of answers the question we asked earlier about what was my dad getting from the letter to Santa thing. I never thought of it being also a phase in a parent's life. It absolutely is. Wow. That's something that I think I'm very keenly aware of because call back to our parentification episode and how Mm -hmm. my dad processed his emotions through his children and still does. Um, (laughs) Whenever Christmas came around and I got really excited about Santa, um, he made it really clear to me that my excitement about Santa made his life better. Oh, And, like, that creates a weird kind of pressure, right? Yeah. But then once I lost the belief in Santa and became kind of, like, down about it, because, you know, you you feel like you've lost something really special and important because you can't go back. Um, And when I was sharing that with my dad, he would constantly tell me and remind me that, yeah, it's not until you have kids again that you get to experience the magic of Santa. And so I think I've always been really familiar with that concept, with the fact that these myths come around twice, Mm -hmm. kind of like like a weird meteor that you you experience twice in your life. Yeah. It's kind of like watching a movie for the first time that's really good is special. And then when you watch it the second time, it's not as special. But watching a friend watch it for the first time gives you that special feeling again because you're getting to see them experience the magic. That is an excellent example, Marie. You are so Thanks. good at this. Thank you. Uh, yeah, there's something weird in the vicarious experience of some someone's just pure belief. Yeah. Um, even if you know that that belief is about to become crushed by the passage <laughs> of time. Yeah. There's something really weird about that. and <laughs> I love that we're taking a moment to sit down and look at it. I don't feel like I'm going to be able to define that or, like, break it down into yeah. this is why we do this. And I I don't care. I just think it's really neat to look at. And it's universal in a yeah. really weird way. <laughs> and it's an interesting phenomenon to kind of, like, point out and just kind of put our hands up and say, why do we do this? This is right? really weird. Yeah. It's worth paying attention to because I don't think anybody has a child planning to tell that baby about a tooth fairy that comes and steals their tiny mouth bones and gives them quarters. You know, yeah. that's not the reason people become parents. And yet <laughs> every parent I know just falls into doing that tradition because every baby loses their teeth once they yeah. get older. I mean, I probably will. Exactly. It's interesting to look at for me because we usually don't look at it. We just do it without yeah. thinking about it. Yeah, that. Yeah, that makes sense. The next reason I want to kind of throw at the wall and see if it sticks as far as like, why do parents do this? Um, (laughs) Goes back to the history section and how the first references we have about the Tooth Fairy come from America in the early 1900s. And this is a quote pulled out of the Household Hints section of the Chicago Daily Tribune in 1908. And it's written by... Lillian Brown. Many a refractory child will allow a loose tooth to be removed if he knows about the tooth fairy. If he takes his little tooth and puts it under the pillow when he goes to bed, the tooth fairy will come at night and take it away, and in its place will leave some little gift. It is a nice plan for mothers to visit the five-cent counter and lay in a supply of articles to be used on such occasions. 
Oh my gosh, your old-timey voice was perfect. So that is a huge adult benefit. Like, when you think about how fickle children are and how hard it is to get them to zip up their jacket before they go outside, losing a tooth is, like, nine million times harder than zipping up a jacket. And getting a kid to be okay with something like that, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you're going to use a weird story myth. Like, yeah, yeah, you're going to bribe them with candy but use an intermediary so they're not thinking that they can just get something from you. It makes so much sense on a logistical level. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I remember being, like, excited to lose teeth because I enjoyed the whole tooth fairy thing. Yeah, it makes it an oddly satisfying experience because you're looking forward to a guaranteed exchange. Yeah, yeah. That's strange, right? Like, we teach mm-hmm. children to be okay with this weird traumatic thing they have no control over because, don't money. worry, the going rate for a tooth is guaranteed. Yeah, that is <laughs> That's true. That's freaking weird. <laughs> <laughs> that is really weird. There's nothing more effective than paying your kid to uh, not be sad about pain. Am I right, ladies? <laughs> uh, it's like you read my mind because that is exactly the segue I needed for this next section. Oh, and we're going to talk about outcomes, but it's not necessarily an outcome because this is – it's like saying what's the outcome of a fish swimming in water. Like this is just yeah. like the air that we live in. This is the – this is what we breathe. This is where we are. Just normal. But I do want to talk about the significance of the tooth fairy and, like, what it produces. What do we get from it? Exactly. What, what do we get from talking about the tooth fairy? And it's funny because what do we get from believing in the tooth fairy is really connected to how the tooth fairy works, as in what am I going to get for this thing? Oh. So the idea of exchange is so fundamental to the belief in the tooth fairy it's not present in any other mythical creature that we engage with in as far as like american childhood you don't give santa something i mean you give him cookies because like it's really nice but it's optional the cookies don't summon santa exactly the cookies don't make it happen there is nothing that you can do to make him like, show up or not show up. Like, you can't stop Christmas from happening. Sorry, Mr. Grinch. (laughs) There's no other mythical creature or figure in American childhood where you have to offer something in order to have an outcome. Yeah, that is an interesting concept. It is a lesson in exchange. And it's a lesson in a very particular kind of exchange. And I think you really alluded to this perfectly when you pointed out, like, this is something very difficult that a child has no choice in Mm -hmm. and teaching them like don't worry you'll get something for it is a really interesting introduction to the idea of of free markets and capitalism it's always capitalism it's always capitalism (laughs) (laughs) it it kind of is but totally because there are days when i don't want to go to work but i need the money you know, yeah. like you, yeah. you as an adult do a lot of things you don't want to do because money. It, Yeah. I mean, it's also kind of similar to like the concept of beauty is pain. Like I don't enjoy the feeling of high heels, but I like how my legs look in them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you give something up to gain something else. I think that's a very American concept for sure. It's true. It's true. And it's it's not just giving something up to gain something. It's giving something up to gain something 
in a individual vacuum. This is not mm. like a group effort. This isn't yeah. any kind of – it's something we all go through, but it's not a collective thing at all. Like yeah. if you and your friend both lose teeth, there's no like mutual celebration or whatever. It's like you guys are both going to get exchanges and then you're going to compare them to see whose tooth was worth more. Ooh. It is a very independent, individualized phenomenon. And yeah. that – reeks of capitalism and american yeah. individualism and i'm not like gonna end this episode by saying you shouldn't do the tooth fairy because capitalism is bad i am bringing this up because it is fundamental to the conversation and wildly fascinating to both of us yeah and i think it is interesting how some kids are getting more for their tooth than others. When I was a kid, that's the reason why I didn't find it to be real. Because I was like, if the tooth fairy was real, there's no reason why one kid's tooth is worth more than another kid's. Mm. Like, there is no reason why my friends would be getting more than me other than their parents think the tooth fairy would give $5 and my parents think it would give one. Like, but Marie, you were just being given like an advanced lesson in capitalism. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. That's where I was going. <laughs> it, was, like, it all comes back to capitalism, man. <laughs> it super does. And a very specific kind of capitalism. Yeah. I don't know. It's really, I'm not going to be able to put it into a sentence on a podcast that's not about capitalism. Right. But we are talking about it anyway. <laughs> I see the tie-in for sure. It's kind of obvious, but also saying that it's obvious for some reason, generates pushback. And I think the reason why it generates pushback is because we recognize that capitalism is deeply flawed and we don't mm -hmm. want to think that we're pushing that onto children because that's bad. But the fact of the matter is we, we push bad shit onto children all the time. We might as well, like, sit back and look at it and maybe be honest. Right. You know? Yeah. So, Can't argue with that. That's what we're doing. Um, and instead of me trying to wax poetic about why the tooth fairy and capitalism is important to talk about, I'm going to read another quote Do because it. that's why God made quotes. Going back to the Toulouse article because it's a great article. Um, and it says, the tooth fairy is an adult creation. Given the lesson of the ritual, this is not surprising for the economic message of the custom is an adult and modern one, produce and sell. This message may be contrasted to the infantile and one might say primitive message produced and hoard because that's a very infant kind of conclusion yeah. to come to, right? That is the logic of both monetization and the free market. And it is the social lesson that parents teach, albeit unconsciously, when they direct their charges to place their teeth under the pillow. Interesting. That is a great way of summing it up. Right? So it's not only a transition between baby teeth and adult teeth, between being given this magical sense of innocence and the inevitable downfall of that, but it's also the shift, this author is arguing, between produce and hoard mentality, which mm -hmm. he calls more like infantile and and like a survival tactic mm -hmm. to produce and sell, which is very obviously a, like a free marketplace concept. Yeah. One that isn't instinctive, mm -hmm. but is taught by parents and taught very specifically using kind of a magical framework to do so. Yeah. So that's my uh, funny ending to a funny story. I don't want to just drop off just yet because there are still plenty more interesting things to talk about when it comes to baby teeth and the way that we deal with them. Um, so I have some little bonus extra fun outros 
One of them is the lesson of inflation. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. There was a moment, I think, in which the negotiation for the price of what teeth should be worth uh, came up in my household. I'm sure it came (laughs) up in plenty of other households. But the idea of comparing the cost of teeth, for some reason, molars are worth more money. And when I say that, saying that out loud is is completely arbitrary and why the fuck should that be like that <laughs> zero sense but yeah zero it, like sense. That, it was the same way in my family yeah and yet when i say it it's completely believable like totally. oh yeah molars that should be worth more money it's bigger yeah it's bigger it was harder to to produce i guess it was harder to to be able to present it and so all of those concepts really tie into the produce and sell kind of motif mm-hmm. the idea of Like, this is how you engage in a marketplace. This is how you define worth. Yeah. The cost of baby teeth, the cost of milk teeth, has uh, risen considerably since the early 20th century. And Mm. so noticeably that there was even an article about it in the British Medical Journal. Oh, my gosh. I think that's incredible. That is amazing. The inflation that the tooth fairy has had to deal with as far (laughs) as the cost of teeth, it has gone up um, very consistently with the cost of living and with, you know, the fact that you can't buy bubble gum with a nickel anymore. She's a small business owner. Hardcore. And I think (laughs) she's way more in debt than she thought she was going to be when she first started. The thing I wanted to end with, and I've been thinking about going back to our frog and toad episode and how I deal with horror um, Mm -hmm. and scary things. And so we're going to end this with maybe not a horror story, but we're going to end with a cautionary tale. Okay. I like that. My my favorite part is that just this was written in the British Medical Journal. So therefore, it's (laughs) given credence. It's medical. It's medical. It's fine. (laughs) Story time. Anecdotal evidence suggests that the Tooth Fairy is benevolent, but this opinion may need revising in light of mounting reports of less child-friendly activity. The latest victim was an eight-year-old boy referred to a specialist allergy clinic with a history of profuse mucopurulent rhinorrhea. After first-line medical treatment failed, computed tomography of the sinuses was performed. This revealed evidence of changes consistent with sinusitis, but also a calcified foreign body in the left external auditory canal. The family spoke of an occasion three years earlier, when the boy had woken from sleep, extremely distressed because the tooth fairy had put a tooth in his left ear. The tooth had initially been left under his pillow for the tooth fairy to collect and leave some money in its place. Thinking this was just a bad dream, the parents initially reassured the boy, but were unable to locate the tooth. Oh my gosh. Nevertheless, his concerns continued, and on two occasions, advice was sought from different general practitioners when arscopy was thought to be normal. Repeat oroscopy by the allergist confirmed the presence of a deciduous tooth in the auditory canal. The tooth was then removed by an ENT surgeon under microscopic vision, and the patient decided to keep the tooth for posterity rather than taking the risk of attempting a further pecuniary reward. He kindly gave his consent for us to disseminate this information to save other children from going through this ordeal. So let me get this straight. He put the tooth under his pillow for the tooth fairy to come, and in his sleep, the tooth got lodged in his ear, and the parents were like, you don't know what you're talking about, kid. You just had a bad dream. We're not even going to question why we can't find the tooth. Here's five bucks. And then, like, two years later- Three! Three (laughs) years later, he starts having sinus issues, and it's the tooth? Yeah. Is this what you're telling me? Yes. That's disgusting! Yes! (laughs) 
Oh my gosh. Yeah, dude. I fucking can't believe it. I read it and I'm like, I I don't know how to fit this in, but I need to tell Marie. <laughs> oh my god. I wish you could have seen my face when you were reading that. My mouth was just like slightly ajar the whole time. Like, what the fuck? Don't put a tooth under your pillow. <laughs> Yeah, like put it in a box like Lou or a plastic bag like my family. Anything. But don't just put it loose under the pillow. Come on. Those things are so small. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that it was in that poor little boy's ears for three years. Oh, my God. Yeah, can't believe it. I wonder if he, as a child, put the tooth in his ear like on accident and was like, oh, shit, Uh, (laughs) it was the tooth fairy. (laughs) That's a great question. (laughs) Yeah, like, if it happened in his sleep, how did he know it was there? I mean, other than, like, ouch, my ear. But, like, I wouldn't immediately jump to the conclusion of, the tooth is in my ear. Huh. I didn't think to be Mm. like, this is the kid's fault, but, uh... I sniff shenanigans. Good job, Marie. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, what did we learn today? Always put your tooth in a receptacle before putting it under your pillow. Please, God. That the tooth fairy is subject to inflation, like... The rest of us. (laughs) And it's always capitalism. Yeah. And also, we don't know where she came from, but it's probably Disney. It's probably Disney. Disney. And she probably has a great waistline. (laughs) That's how I picture her. Same here, man. (laughs) Same here, man. I have a couple same here, man questions. Not really related to the Tooth Fairy because we've kind of already talked about all of our experience with the Tooth Fairy. I mean, you go through it for like mm-hmm. a year. So mm-hmm. we're going to play just a classic version of Same Here Man. I have no connections or friends from high school or earlier. That's a can't relate. Mm. Um, well, I'm married to someone I went to high school with, but Blech. I know. <laughs> a lot of my connections with people from high school didn't happen until after high school. And the people I was friends with during high school, I'm no longer friends with. Interesting. Okay. So you're yeah. just like... Well, I'll just go back to the same pool and see what I get. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it kind of happened on accident, but I guess that's a good description. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember a single babysitter. I think because I was the babysitter, but I don't remember any. Can't relate. I have a lot of babysitter memories. Ah. That's pretty crazy. But that's also maybe because I was the youngest sibling Mm. and, and you were the oldest. I think it might also be economic differences. Like, my, I don't think my parents ever hired a babysitter. Ever. Uh, Mm. Next one. I remember taking baths with one or both parents. That's also a can't relate. Mm. That was, like, not a thing in my family. Amazing. Yeah, I know it's it's a a wide difference across different families, like, based on either levels of purity or uh, how easy it is to have time away from your children. (laughs) Um, Yeah, true. There are a lot of different factors into that. I thought it would be interesting to compare. Yeah, that is interesting. My next one, I was called a tomboy. Mm, that's a same here, man. All right. I thought so. After the frog story. Yeah. I was like a self-proclaimed tomboy. Like I was afraid of being accused of not being a tomboy. Oh my God, that's amazing. That's so <laughs> counterintuitive. I, know. I would expect nothing less. Um, <laughs> and then my last one. I used to be really picky, but as an adult, I've learned I'm not. I just don't like my mom's cooking. <laughs> oh my gosh that's funny um <laughs> it's specific but i know someone's gonna relate to that <laughs> yeah i think there are things i thought i didn't like 
and I actually do like them. I just didn't like the way my mom cooked it. So I guess in that regard, it's the same yep, here, man. There we but go. I, I would. I don't think I've ever been picky. Like I've always just eaten everything. But there are things I didn't prefer until I started cooking it myself, and I was like, "Oh, yeah, this is that's way the same. Better. That's the same." Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for playing. <laughs> if you want to play along or send in your own questions or request a topic, you can email us at samehairmanpod at gmail Find us on the internet wherever you like to find things at samehairmanpod or our website samehairman.com. We also have merch, so that's kind of fun. Designed by Lou. If you like to buy and wear things, it's super cute. That's all we have for today, I think. Until next time, don't put teeth in your ear. Sell your teeth to a toothless Santa lady. <laughs> yes. Go watch Tooth Fairy with Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Disney knew what he was doing. He's got a great ass. <laughs> she hella does. Tinkerbell can get it. <laughs>